Hello and welcome to the Science AAAS webinar, part of our series addressing important, timely and sometimes controversial topics that impact us all, but with a particular focus on the sciences. In today's webinar, we're tackling the subject of citizen science, what it is, how it works, and how it can benefit scientists as well as serving society more broadly. My name is Sean Sanders, and I'm director and senior editor for Custom Publishing at Science. It'll be my honor and privilege to moderate today's discussion with our impressive and knowledgeable panel of guests. Finally, I'd like to thank Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. Now it gives me much pleasure to introduce today's panel to, to you now. Uh, just to my left is Dr. Chris Lintot from Oxford University in the United Kingdom. Next to him is Dr. Francois Taddy from the Center for Research and Interdisciplinarity in Paris. Uh, to my right is uh, Dr. Renate van der Weyden from University College Roosevelt in the Netherlands. And next to her is Dr. Olivier Legal from INRA Bordeaux in Bordeaux, France. Uh, welcome everyone and thank you so much for being here today. It's great to have you. Um, before we dive into today's topic, I thought I'd give you each an opportunity to briefly introduce yourselves uh, and say what you do and, and what brings you to this webinar. So, Chris, we'll start with you. Sure. I'm a distracted astronomer. I care mostly about galaxies and how they form and evolve. But I also serve as principal investigator for the Zooniverse, which is a large online platform supporting more than 100 citizen science projects. And I've just finished a book about citizen science, which is called The Crowd and the Cosmos. Great. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Francois, over to you. So I'm, I'm Francois Tadei, and I head this uh, Center for Research and Disability in Paris. Uh, our main aim is to help those that want to reinvent the way we learn, the way we teach, the way we do research, uh, including citizen science, and the way we mobilize collective intelligence broadly in order to help everyone that cares uh, to care about themselves, to care about others, and to care about the planet. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Uh, Renata? Yes, I work on water-related topics mostly, so water treatment, water quality, uh, also at Wageningen University and Wetzes. And for that very reason, I'm involved in two citizen science projects. Uh, one is called uh, on water quality at Bard College in upstate New York. And the other one is a drinkable rivers project, uh, which was initiated in the Netherlands by a lady called Leon Foa. And that's a project that is now launched throughout Europe. And so over the next two months, citizens will collect data from rivers and we hope to do a data crunch with University College Roosevelt students, October 26th. Great, thank you Renata. And final, finally, Olivier. Yeah, I'm an amateur bird watcher and, and, and uh, involved in citizen science program this way. And by, by profession, I'm a researcher at INRA, which is the French uh, organization, research organization for food systems from the environment, agriculture and, uh, and nutrition. And when I was deputy CEO of INRA in charge of, uh, of science, I, uh, uh, with my, my chairman at this time, I was uh, organizing, I organized a, a task force for open science uh, that included a delegate for uh, citizen sciences and, uh, and participatory sciences. And this term is now finished and I'm now chairing the French research, uh, French advisory board for research integrity. Uh, which uh, is a new, um, a new uh, thing in France. And uh, we have one of the questions that we are uh, thinking about, having some reflection about, is uh, um, research integrity in uh, citizen sciences. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you very much. So, again, welcome all of you. Um, so I thought we'd dive in and uh, talk a little bit about um, how citizen science might be defined. And I know in, 
in my research and from talking to all of you earlier, it seems like it's a difficult, kind of a difficult concept to really define. So what um, uh, Chris kindly suggested is that maybe we talk about some examples of citizen science and maybe each of you could, could speak to one or two examples that you've come across and, and that way we can help the audience understand what citizen science is, is all about. So Chris, we'll, we'll start on your side. Well, my adventure with citizen science started with a project called Galaxy Zoo, which is, comes out of one of those everyday academic problems that you hear. We simply had too many galaxies, which is a problem many people have. We had images of a million galaxies and we needed to sort them out by shape because the shape of a galaxy tells you about its history. Um, we tried to get a PhD student to do the work. The PhD student, Kevin Schwinski, looked at 50,000 galaxies and then came and had a quiet word about maybe he was hoping for more from his PhD. And so without really thinking about it, we put these images online and we invited people to come and help. And we were astonished in three separate ways. One was that thousands, tens of thousands of people very quickly took up this call to come and help what was rather quite an abstract piece of research. People were willing to give their time as citizen scientists to sort through. Secondly, people started noticing things that we hadn't told them to look for. We found unusual objects, which maybe we'll talk about a bit later, um, because of people's curiosity. And the third thing that happened was suddenly we found ourselves in a dialogue with this army of volunteers. We didn't uh, we expected the sort of one-way process. We built a website, people clicked on buttons, but very quickly we were answering questions, talking to them about our research. And so we ended up with a research group containing not just a few professional scientists and a few students, but hundreds of thousands of citizen scientists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, Francois? Yeah, so um, one of the examples I would like to, to cite is uh, by a friend of ours that you also know, Muki Hackley, that is University College London, and he's built a lab that is called Extreme Citizen Science. Mm -hmm. okay? So it's how extreme is he? Uh, he's uh, collaborating with people that live in the Congo forest, might be completely illiterate, uh, and is trying to co-design with them research projects that they care about because that's the way you want to involve them, otherwise they won't be involved. And uh, they co-define apps and digital tools that help them to map their environment and the attacks that that environment uh, is submitted to. So that's one example that is quite extreme, uh, but I, I, I sort of like. Uh, other much more moderate things, uh, in, in our center we've been um, building MOOC and at the end of MOOC we ask questions uh, about the topics that we are addressing in this MOOC, in this case, the learning planet. So we ask people, what do you think the learning planet could be? You know, what is learning for you? What is learning uh, in a planet where we are all connected and we can all learn from each other uh, in ways that were unprecedented? Uh, and so we, we get thousands of answers uh, to the question that we address to them and we enter into a dialogue. And so they can keep um, proposing new ideas and new perspective on what learning is today. Uh, what is it for? You know, how can we learn uh, about the current climate crisis, the environmental crisis, the societal crisis. How can you train children and, and adults to understand the complexity of those issues? And so we are inviting the citizens uh, to be contributors to the transformation of the institution that, you know, on their own, have some sort of a hard time in evolving. So for instance, if you do a citizen science of the future of university, uh, it's probably easier to do than if you ask you know, a university president to change university, uh, or you know, faculties for that matter, or you know, anyone. But so trying to involve everyone uh, into the future of X uh, is interesting, and I think that's one of the approaches citizen science could be used for into the future, is you know, if you take a, a problem that concerns many people and you invite uh, 
citizens to contribute to redefine what this could be into the future, uh, you can involve them because they are motivated uh, to tackle that very problem. Great, yeah. And we're definitely going to get to some of the advantages of citizen science uh, a little bit later in the discussion. So, um, Olivier, how about we yeah, come I to you? I agree with, with what Francois was saying. So, there, there are different kinds of citizen sciences and, uh, and, and participatory, uh, participative sciences. Uh, some are um, involving the communities in, in the problems that the communities identify, and maybe sometimes the, cities, the, the scientists can help them uh, put these difficulties in, into questions, into scientific questions, and, and, and help them or address them with them. With the, so maybe that's the, 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 the story with the, with the forest that you were mentioning. Mm -hmm. and, um, <clears throat> and then there, there is also a, a very long history of citizen science. Actually, for centuries, there was no such, such, such thing, <laughs> there was no such thing as, as a, a professional scientists. Mm -hmm. the, the, the big scientists, they were monks, uh, princes, etc. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, they had other jobs in life. Or, and, 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 and then these professional scientists uh, started in basically in the 19th century with the Industrial Revolution, maybe. And, then, and now it's the, it's the, main, uh, the mainstream uh, science. But in some fields like uh, astronomy, uh, like Chris was saying, in um, natural history, uh, there's always been a, a history of, uh, of, citizen, of citizens doing science. Right. And, and for instance, uh, now, nowadays, uh, in the beginning of 21st century, about half of the new species, I, I read that about half of the new species that are being described uh, in the museums of natural history uh, are described by uh, amateurs. And this is not because like there, there are fewer species described than in the 19th century. There are four times more. Mm -hmm. So it's, this effort has always been uh, continuing and, and, and that's part of it. And in, in natural history, it's, uh, it's, uh, you've got uh, amateur naturalists going in the field, out in the field, organizing themselves and producing knowledge, producing data, producing shared knowledge uh, with, with uh, um, uh, methodology to share this knowledge, etc. So that's one of the definitions of science, mm -hmm. whatever science is. Right. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, I think that there are, there are many examples which are very useful for the communities, for the citizens. Yeah, well, Great. I mean, that's why you make uh, this <laughs> webinar. Yes. <laughs> Great point. Yeah, Renata. Yeah, so also, yeah, it's a participation of citizens in, mm -hmm. this, in this project. So we hope for the drinkable rivers that uh, now it's launched in 14 countries that we will have many people involved. Mm -hmm. But again, going back to the definition, because you all talk about involving uh, people and students at various uh, levels. Um, uh, Bard College has a slightly different take on citizen science where they actually want to empower citizens to deal with science, how to read their water yearly water report mm -hmm. and whether they sh should act upon it. Uh, so that is uh, more like science literacy and mm -hmm. science communication, like how can we communicate data to the people so that they actually can participate. So that is a probably the step prior to involving the citizens themselves. It what do you think? It certainly can be. I'm not sure it has yeah. to be in that order, but I was just thinking you see a lot of that sort of complex interaction with science, particularly around issues with patients mm. and so on, right. where right. you know, look at the efforts patients have gone to to promote uh, research into rare diseases or so on. Mm -hmm. That sort yeah. of thing enabled by the web which allows people to talk right. to each other to have access 
subject to open access and so on to the scientific literature, you can see some really um, interesting engagement of groups and individuals from outside the scientific process where they're strongly motivated mm -hmm. to not just to be part of the scientific enterprise, but to have opinions about the direction in which it should go. Yeah. Um, we're going to see more of that with genomics, with home genomic testing and so on, yeah. is pushing that end of citizen science into some quite interesting and, and ethically problematic areas. And it's a different type of uh, approach. It's, it's, it's a different level, maybe, uh, with a community of patients, for instance, uh, which are affected by rare disease. Uh, they have a direct interest in this science being made and sometimes they end up doing the science themselves mm -hmm. and in, in, because they are directly concerned. Mm -hmm. And then there, there is something like, I mean, no one is directly concerned with the galaxies or everyone is. Yeah, yeah, not to begin yeah, with, yeah, yeah. or everyone yeah, is. But, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> as, far as, as far as we know, yeah, that's, <laughs> that, that's true. But yeah. you, know, you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, uh, and then there, are some, there is a lot of curiosity-driven uh, mm. citizen science because yeah. just because it's nice to know about this galaxy mm -hmm. to participate in this mm -hmm. knowledge being elaborated etc and uh, and um, yeah yeah it's people get obviously by participating in these projects people get a enormous variety of, of things back so some mm -hmm. people take part in citizen science projects because they know they want to learn and this is a way of learning about the natural world or whatever but we've also seen 10% of Galaxy Zoo volunteers actually 8% I think reported that they take part in the project because they like thinking about the vastness of the universe <laughs> there's a need that so, we're satisfying yeah. and professionally they can have a, a very diverse origins they're yeah. just just being a, in every mm -hmm. every part of right. everyday's life a bus driver etc and just uh, well, yeah, yeah, children, yeah, children, children of course. Yeah. And, and, and just when at night, then they come back home, like others like watching football, for instance, just go into the, the thing and, uh, and, and participate in knowledge. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, th there's also, uh, I think, another aspect, like for the Drinkable Rivers project, that I'd like to point out with, in that respect, uh, because uh, you're talking about people individually being, you know, interested in things and uh, we have some problems also some common problems that we need to solve so as citizens together mm -hmm. or as people together so for that reason I, I really like a project like Drinkable Rivers because uh, as the initiator explained uh, you have watersheds and it connects all the people like blood yeah. veins and so all the people living yeah. in a certain watershed uh, have common shared responsibility yeah. for the quality of that river and so, uh, yes, there's the individual incentive, mm -hmm. but I think also uh, a community and really yeah. a broader so, scope on citizen science. Oh. You know, you've got parents that are involved in citizen science of children development. Okay? Oh, For yeah. instance, there is yeah. the Child Mind Institute in New York uh, that we collaborate with uh, on, on some project called MindLogger, where, you know, you can, um, with an app, uh, that you can install on your cell phone. Mm -hmm. You can document what's the learning phase through which your child goes. Okay? And it might be you know, a perfectly healthy child, but you never know. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they are producing data. Uh, and then there is all sort of ethical issues, you know, how, how secure those data are, and they've been working very carefully on making this very secure. But, you know, those data you can decide to share with, you know, scientists, with doctors, with psychologists, with people that are interested. And it's done in such a way that you can add your own questions. You can add uh, new tests. You can, uh, so it's not just, you know, you answer this quiz and you help us, you know, produce data on the specific question that the scientists have. No, it's, it's a tool that empowers the parents 
uh, empowers the, the teachers and, and caregivers to help them understand what's going on and track it and, and evolve it. Right. Is that specific data on their children that they're... Most of the time, yes. Yeah, that's, so that's what they that's do. That's another issue. And especially if you have autistic kids, for instance, yeah. you, know, uh, you have long-term yeah. uh, involvement in this. And you'll try everything you can. And so right. you're already you know, a scientist as a parent because you are testing everything you can to, yeah, to help, help connect yeah. with your child. And a lot of observation. I mean, parents are constantly watching their children to see how they're developing. So, yeah. I, so I, I, we're going to come back to the ethical side, which I think you're, I you're touching on, yeah. which, which I'd really like to talk about. But what I find interesting about this part of the discussion is, is motivation and, and mm -hmm. how different people are motivated by a lot of similar things, but also you know, quite a broad range of things from education um, to you know, somebody who's just interested. But, but the one thing that I thought was very interesting that you all touched on to some extent was the dialogue that was created. And you also mentioned in this app that people can submit new questions. So um, I thought that was very interesting and, and maybe unexpected. Um, Certainly was for us. I, I, I don't want to paint astrophysics as this obtuse subject. We're not quantum mechanics or something. You know, people care whether there's life, whether there, there are planets. And so there is, there is. That's true. That's, that, that, that's true. But I, I think what we hadn't realized was that once you find a way to engage anyone in modern astronomy, they suddenly have 20 more questions. Uh, but it's in that order. So no one, I think, sits down at their computer, thinks, I want to do some citizen science today, Google citizen science, and then picks a project. No one goes to the Zooniverse, very few people go to our platform and says, okay, I'm going to be a citizen scientist. Which of these 100 projects will I best make my citizen science career? participating in and um, people are curiosity driven maybe they follow a link that their friends posted or something in the news or something like that or um, and they find themselves staring for example at our, our project penguin watch and they find themselves counting penguins um, that's easy to do lots of kids participate in this project it's very popular yeah it did we we have quantifiable evidence that if you add penguins to your project, it will become more popular. Um, so that's, that's a tip for anyone who's trying to build a citizen science project. But, um, but you find yourself counting penguins, but then you find yourself thinking, well, hang on, um, when the weather's bad, there are fewer penguins. Where do they go? Uh, you find yourself noticing that you're seeing the same site and perhaps the behavior is different there. Suddenly, you have quite detailed technical questions, some of which the scientists don't know the answers to. Right. And so our products at least take people from, I'm not even remotely interested in this topic, to I have a research question that I'd like you to answer in, in the space yeah. of 20 minutes or something like that. And, and that creates dialogue. I see that, uh, for instance, uh, the University of Antwerp has uh, performed a citizen science project very successfully on uh, air quality. And uh, they actually have on their webpage a whole list of frequently asked questions. I, I wonder how that feels if you're a citizen and you can, you know, you have to choose the question you had. It may be mm -hmm. more specific. But one of the questions I thought of uh, that was very interesting was, that somebody asked, well, the air quality here is really, really bad, so what can I do about it? Mm. And so then as a scientist, then your, yeah, then your responsibility all of a sudden seems to increase, like, uh, do I have to but, yeah. moderate to to this result? Or, yeah. Yeah. To go back to the question of uh, feedback and interactions, yeah. I think that's very different from you know, the one-way communication that science yeah. too often have. Yeah. Uh, and it enables um, learning on both sides. Yes. and really co-construction of maybe new research question, new research venues, right. new research style. And I think, you know, any scientist is sort of an explorer, 
Okay? A seasoned scientist can be an explorer, but I think that the couple, you know, professional scientist, citizen scientist, explores new ways to explore. And that in, in itself is, is a new research question, you know, what are, you know, the pros and cons and the best ways to do citizen science, you know, this is an open research question as well, sort of a meta research question. Yeah, yeah. So that's another thing that I, I really want to come to as well. Um, one question that I wanted to ask is, it seems clear from, from our discussion so far that there's a lot of positives to citizen science. So maybe there's some scientists out there who are thinking, well, maybe I can use citizen science. So how do they, how do they get started and where, where is the responsibility for starting a citizen science project? Um, you know, what level is it at? Do you, can you just as a scientist say, okay, I'm going to do this? Or is it at the university level, the department level? Any thoughts? Well, I think that's very much like what Chris was saying for the citizen scientists. It's not like you're going to the on the internet and okay, what, what I'm going, I, I want to be become a citizen scientist and now what 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 should I do? If you're a scientist, then you again if uh, the same thing. If you, you 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 need to have some specific things, but you do not become a, a with citizen or how do you call that yeah, scientist? Citizen engaged. Yeah, you don't just become. Not every research project can can fit into this. Not every research. Um, um, facility or whatever can work with citizen scientists, but uh, there are some that can, and some some which are very surprising. In in fact, I'm a bit surprised sometimes. Um, so I trained in molecular biology of, of viruses, of plant viruses, and uh, and in this field we have uh, data databases like uh, GeneBank and, uh, and and databases in Europe as well, um, <coughs> where you find the data, the, the genome data. We have uh, the tools, to, the bioinformatics tools to work with, which are for free. And, um, and we have uh, people with skills, like they have a PhD, a postdoc, and they did not find a job afterwards. And, and I'm surprised that these people would not, because I think that's what I would have done if I wouldn't have a position in research, uh, that these people do not start uh, um, uh, some, some, their own project at home in the evening, uh, aligning sequences, uh, doing uh, uh, working on the origin of life, etc. Mm -hmm. I think there are several ways to answer your question as well, um, beyond what we just said. I think that you know, institutions can decide, for instance, to train PhD students about citizen science, okay? uh, or you know, even younger students uh, that can be involved uh, in a research uh, project to begin with, and they are somewhere at an interface between you know, the ivory tower and society. They are at the age and, and they still have the connections and so on. So that's one possibility. And if you've been trained like this quite early on, then when you grow up as a scientist, you know, into academia, you may feel, you know, there must be a way for me to find a research question I like where I can involve citizens that can contribute to societal question that cannot easily be addressed within the ivory tower. Okay? Uh, and so, you know, there is question that, you know, ivory tower are very good at. But there is uh, more complex questions, maybe like you know, how do you deal with sustainable development? Uh, how do you deal with water or with you know uh, too much data or sure. whatever, yeah. uh, where you need to involve others? And I think so. It could be uh, individuals that are drivers. It could also be institution. And you know, there is more and more, for instance, at the European level, uh, funding targeted to these sorts of question, which you know will elicit all sorts of answers and uh, to these calls. Well, like you said, it could also be started by an individual not being in the scientific world. So uh, the Drinkable Rivers project would be an example. Somebody just 
sawing the, the effects on, on rivers, you know, very nice pristine river in Canada suddenly got polluted and how did that happen? And now being concerned about the river quality in, in Europe. And so she just walks along the river, talks to citizens, and then she got in touch with the universities. Like, okay, now we have these data, how reliable are they? And so now to really professionalize it, she's contacted a team in which I'm involved, but also with TU Delft to really think about what can citizens do mm -hmm. and not just haphazardly uh, yes. think of methods yourself. So uh, yeah. that is a level where it starts from the individual and that's why I like it so much because she was able to involve citizens. Whereas in Belgium it started I think from top down. Like we need more data on water quality or on air quality mm -hmm. and then who wants to be involved in this. So, so it's different, different so, so, sources. So we've worked quite hard with the platform we built, which allows people to build their own projects, yeah. to keep it low down in right. the in, in, in the hierarchy that, right. you, that you laid out, because we think these projects are difficult. They require a lot of effort to get the communication right, mm -hmm. to 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 sort of work with the citizens and to listen to them. All of that's effort on top of the. I also want to find out about galaxies or penguins or whatever it is. So it's important that we find researchers who really want to do this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so we built a platform that allows people to quickly experiment and to dip their toe in these waters and, and then to do it themselves without asking for permission and without the institution. However, I think it, there are institutional responsibilities here. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most important things is that the institutions can prepare fertile ground for citizen science. Mm -hmm. So that means, I think, supporting open science. Mm -hmm. I think it means providing uh, access to data, to publications. And then the one that's often missed is that it's not enough just to be open. It's not enough, I think, I don't know your field, but it's not enough always just to provide the same tools that researchers use but mm -hmm. make them open. What you have to do is build tools that are legible for lots of people yes. to use. It's, yeah. it's not even tools, it's not only tools, it's also the general governance of That's the right. project. Yeah. Uh, you, you, it's not like another, another colleague. Yeah. Um, and, and, and something that the scientists, uh, well, it, it has something to do with the notion of ivory tower. Right. Uh, something that the, the scientists have to go out of the, the ivory tower. It's quite terrible when you when you hear sometimes or you read some some citizen science project being described as uh, we need some manpower, and then uh, I mean yeah. some slaves. Yeah. So that that's quite terrible. And uh, and 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 the scientists who want to engage in this type of uh, of things and uh, that that's a very good idea for many research questions. Um, they, they should be prepared, like to uh, yeah, of course, yeah, to to open the, the, the for instance, yeah. publish open access so, would be should be mandatory in some ethics or the ontology code of the, of these uh, citizen sciences. Yeah. About the data, enough. I'm not quite sure yeah, because yeah. some data may be private sometimes. With right. with citizens, it, it can be a bit complicated, well, well, but the publications for sure. What I want to say is that publishing open access is the beginning of that, though it's it's not enough. So we see. In astronomy, all of our papers are either open access or they're available on the archive. So people have access, but we don't see even citizen scientists, for the most part, who are heavily engaged in the projects, don't easily absorb the information in that no. those papers. They're mostly badly written. We need new forms of publication that are open. Sorry, Anne. I think there is one dimension that um, explains why this is more happening more today. Okay. Mm -hmm. which is that, you know, on average, we are much more educated. So mm -hmm. there is much yes. more people that have enough understanding of some of those issues and, and they want to learn more and they have access to knowledge. Because, you know, a good scientist is someone that has 
enough knowledge to uh, explore uh, the frontiers of his field, but he's also someone that has peers uh, that you can connect with through the web these days. Uh, it's also someone that has access to technologies uh, in order to make measures. And these sorts of tools that we all have in our pockets these days is enormous amount of technology. Any scientist of the past would be amazed by you know, what you could do with this and all things you could measure. You, know, you can measure the pendulum, you can measure free fall, you can do all sorts of things. Uh, and, and this is empowering uh, citizens to start their own projects. And so if uh, academia, to come back to, to your question of institutions, start to build platforms uh, such as the one you've done or, or the Chinaman Institute uh, one uh, has been doing, which is you, know, you build secure database, for instance. Not something easy for a citizen to do. But once you have built a secure database, you can start entering data and you can choose which data you have. You know, is it a video of your kid? Is it you know, a quiz? Is it a game? So you can generate data through so many ways today uh, and you can record them and you can start sharing them, storing them, analyzing them and therefore contribute to science. So I think the, the entry barrier is much lower than ever. Mm -hmm. And something just before, just before we mentioned publications mm -hmm. and Implicitly, we were thinking, and it's, it's true, but not very obvious for all people in academics, we were thinking that citizen science is science, produces high-level publications, whatever high-level whatever high publication is, but, but the same type of, of level publications as other types of science, more, more academic science. And, and yet, usually, or sometimes, it's considered a bit badly by other academics like um, you are going into citizen science, it should not. It's, it's, it's a, a real way to do, to, do, to do very good science. Just, I mean, it must be clear. Yeah. So that, that brings us nicely to the next question I wanted to ask, which is to talk about some of the pitfalls of, of citizen science, potential pitfalls, shall we say. Um, and the one is uh, reproducibility, rigor, and quality. Um, so, so, Renata, maybe I'll, I'll start with you, if, you know, from your, the projects that you've worked on. How do you maintain those levels of rigor and quality, make sure it, you know, the, the, everything is reproducible? I, is it training the citizen sciences, is it the way you provide the information? It's, well, we, we cannot potentially go to all these countries ourselves, so mm -hmm. what we would have to do is that we uh, send out a manual that we have to think of carefully like how do we word it? So if we say how much land was used for agriculture, how many uh, lands was used for uh, livestock, and to put that in percentages, then not everybody knows the percentages. So there already, you can already assume there will be some difficulties. Uh, with actually measuring something like the pH of water, uh, you just need to provide very clear instructions. And, and you know that if something is really too far off, then it's an outlier. But we're, yeah, uh, the Belgian project on air quality uh, produced like 90% reliable data. So mm -hmm. it really is how you plant it out there. It's very important. Uh, so to Olivia's point, it could potentially be much more rigorous than maybe we give it credit for. You know, yeah, it's, you, it's not necessarily just people playing around it. No, hopefully science, not. Yeah. But uh, I do do think <coughs> that uh, you know we ourselves do experiments that fail at times, mm -hmm. so uh, we shouldn't uh, expect uh, uh, citizens to always provide a hundred percent of the mm -hmm. data uh, as they are. Mm -hmm. So you have to screen it. That's for sure. And uh, on how to exactly do that, uh, based on the type of data and quantity of data, that will be a challenge. And I think that's. That's a task of the scientific community that we don't, you know, just uh, 
bias the data ourselves or tweak it the way we want it. Yeah, so okay. I don't know how you feel about in that. In fact, <laughs> well, we, we think uh, citizen science projects uh, are a way to uh, talk about the research integrity in terms of the integrity of the scientific method. Mm -hmm. That's that's mm -hmm. the, the that's one of the of the opportunities with, with citizen science with our um, citizen mates, mm -hmm. and um, and because the, the the when I say we is at the, this uh, research integrity advisory board, mm -hmm. um, <coughs> we the, the what we work at is uh, establishing a, a shared culture of research integrity because uh, among researchers, uh, not only citizens, but but because we we the 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 situation is that it's not it is now but it it, it was not for long uh, the th scientific method by itself was not something that uh, uh, students were trained very much uh, etc and it's even less so for citizens obviously for very obvious reasons and so that th there is a, a possibility if if uh, in among citizens there are some stakeholders like uh, in in Renata's projects for instance if there are some uh, some uh, citizen movements that somehow do not want the water to be used this way or that way, etc. They could be, come into the project and, and, and triturate the data or, or, or change right. the data, whatever, which is fraud in normal science and in citizen science as well. It's very, very, very much normal in, this, in the public debate to be pro or against this or that solution, but, but in science should be neutral and citizen science should be neutral as well. And there is this question that, that has to be addressed. It's very easy to address but uh, it has to be addressed and it's a way to to uh, also communicate with the with with everyone in the in the city mm -hmm. like where citizens are um <coughs> about the scientific method and uh, and and that it's better to be neutral and on on results that have been obtained with a neutral method then you can start uh, to debate mm -hmm. i think the education potential there is very important yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know uh, one of the things you learn when you start doing science as, uh, as a research activity, uh, including citizen science, is that not everything works. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because you know, when, when you are in textbooks, you know, everything works in textbooks. <laughs> but you know, the real world is not everything works. Uh, and, and you have to learn. And you have to learn from your failure. And, and, and this is, I think, a part that is very important. And that it's fine that you, know, um, you fail if you learn from your failures. Right. Okay. Uh, and then maybe you will probably uh, start to know about you know what's a positive control, what's a negative control, you know, uh, and how do I know if it works? Uh, and you know, do I have benchmark? Do I have a way to you know uh, define standards so that I can compare the answer? Um, and, 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 yeah, and this, this sort of conversation about data reliability for citizen science, in some sense, lots of different projects deal with it different ways. But I think you've hit the nail on the head there because it really is that we just talk about it more. The kind of controls that we're talking about, the kind of tests that you do. If I came in with a black box and told you it measured river quality and we went and deployed it, you do all the same tests right. on that data on, on whether my black, the Lintop device for measuring river quality worked before you right. used it. We do the same thing with citizen science projects. But because we're in public and because we've got the collaborators, we end up talking about it. So right. yes. I've actually been surprised by the lack of scepticism amongst my peers uh, about the data that our projects produce. I thought I'd spend all my time defending this, but it's not new to anyone to have somebody stand up in a seminar and say, I have a new technique for measuring X. Here's how I know it works. Now we're going to go on and use it. That's perfectly standard. It's just that my new technique is a black box containing 100,000 people, all of whom are giving their time to collaborate to do interesting things. Uh, and, and so we have to be careful, I think, not to hold citizen science to a higher standard mm -hmm. just because we're doing it in public.
Great. Um, actually, wanted to come back to something we were discussing earlier um, is um, on the, the motivation side. Um, and that is um, how we were talking earlier about um, citizen science, scientists joining projects and whether they would join or not. And that mm -hmm. seems a lot to do with how you present the project to them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, talking about maybe that you're going to learn something about science is not the best way to, yeah. and we to learned, approach we it. We learned very early not to call our projects so. citizen science projects because do you want to be a citizen scientist is a barrier. I mean, mm -hmm. let alone the complexities of the word citizen, which I slightly regret yeah, getting mixed yeah. in. Uh, but scientist is such a loaded term for people, mm -hmm. uh, people who went through school and didn't have an enjoyable experience with the textbooks or whatever. Right. Uh, do you want to be a scientist is, is a big deal. I've seen people hold an iPad and be happily working on one of our projects, and the moment they realise that it isn't some museum exhibit and that that's actually real data that scientists are going to use, I've seen them drop the iPad because they I, I need that back because I'm not a scientist. Why are you asking me? And so mm. th that's an enormous barrier. So I think often it's one of the biggest challenges with, we, you, we started by mentioning these extreme citizen science projects. Mm. They're difficult because you've got to put a huge amount of personal time into gaining the trust of people before you can do the science. Uh, in a casual environment on the web, in an informal learning environment, starting with you can be a scientist is actually hugely off-putting and instead you have to find different ways in. Yeah. Um, what can you see in this picture, or do you want to count penguins works well? You know, one of the, the ways we, we've been trying to address that very question in, in Paris uh, and, and across the, the world by now uh, is um, we, we launched a program that is called Les Aventuriers, which is a, a kid scientist program, basically. Mm -hmm. okay? So we, we start from, you know, Alison Gopnik's work uh, that's, you know, that's shown that we are all born scientists, that, you know, every baby is able to have an hypothesis about the world, test it, and that's the way, you know, they are going to uh, do mistakes, learn from their mistakes, revise their hypothesis, and, and repeat experiments. And that's the way we've learned to speak. The, the way we learn to walk, the way we learn so many things. And so, you know, she has uh, very convincing evidence that we use Bayesian statistics from birth on to learn so many things. So that's, that's a very interesting perspective. And when you start saying this to children, that, you know, they are born scientists, and, you know, if only we could nurture uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, it could be much more fun. And, and there is one image that I like, which is uh, François Jacob, you know, the French Nobel Prize uh, for molecular biology. Uh, François Jacob was talking about day science and night science. Okay? So day science is sort of textbook science. It's the one that ranks you and says, you know, you're a failure, you don't know how to solve this equation, you know, it's the sort of things that, that you get scared sure, uh, yeah, with. Yeah, 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 <laughs> and yeah. the night science is the science where nobody knows. Mm -hmm. And when you're in nobody knows, you know, everyone is the same. And kids love it when, you know, the parents, the adults, the scientists don't know and they can ask questions for which, you know, nobody has the answer and maybe they'll be the first one to find out the answer. Okay, and you might know of Boloto that, you know, published a paper uh, with, you know, eight years old and, and so on. And I think these sorts of, of, of things is, is quite impressive and kids just love it. Um, so you have to invite them into the conversation and to ask questions. You know, I started with my own kids. If they ask why, water uh, wets us, uh, if you can answer that question, you're a rather good physicist. Okay? Right. But if, you, if they ask why that answer, if you can still answer, you're a very good physicist. <laughs> but after a few why, you'll remain dry. Right. Okay? And no one can answer anymore. Right. And, and then they love it. It, it, it is important to say, though, I think that, that that kind of positive reinforcement from discovering that no one knows is something that 
I think comes out of a place of confidence for many people. I'm thinking, even for kids, I'm thinking of this workout, the Aspires group at University College London who looked at levels of science capital, how much science you have in your life. Do you go to museums? But also, do you know somebody who's a scientist? Do your family know somebody who's a scientist? And I think we need to be careful not to leave behind groups, even kids from, from diverse backgrounds, where they don't know that not knowing is a good thing. That's a very yeah. positive so it's, it's, scientific so the, thing. The first time we started this project, yeah. we had exactly this problem. Okay. It was very interesting. Uh, we were in a very poor neighborhood uh, near Paris, and there were you know, children of families where no scientists you know, yeah, yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. a mile, or, or you know, thousands of, of uh, very, very distant, um, culturally and, and so on. And if anything, you know, they might have extremist uh, religious mm. beliefs uh, in some of those families. And so they had this discussion on whether they were allowed to ask questions. Okay, and as we said in French, you know, uh, it's you're not supposed to ask questions like you know, curious tickle the cats as as the equivalent in France, which is even worse. And uh, and so they had this discussion, and scientists told them to ask questions, and some adults in their family told them not to ask questions. Mm. So they had a debate on you know, and they were questioning the fact that they could ask questions. Okay, because I think one of the most interesting uh, debates, uh, and you know, they came up with the idea that you know, they, they we had um, installed uh, ants in their classroom so they could work on ants. Okay? In, and in, in a tank, I in a tank, yeah. rather. Yes, yeah. okay. Uh, <laughs> yes, okay. And, 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 and professional scientists had brought you know, their favorite ants uh, okay. in there. And, and the kids were you know, watching this. And what they decided is that they could ask all the questions they wanted about the ants. Mm. Okay. About the rest of the world, you know, it depends on each family and, and, and so on. Okay. But then they started to ask questions about ants. They looked for answers in books that they could find, which is, they read more books than ever, okay, which was already a good sign. They didn't find all the answers in the books. So they went to the web with the help of the teacher. They realized that not all answers on the web are reliable. You know, for eight years old, that's pretty good yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, learning yeah, experience. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then they asked questions uh, that they couldn't find answer to, to the professional scientists that they were collaborating with. And you know, they gave them answers that it took one month to understand because you know, there was all sorts of technical words <laughs> about you know, ants vocabulary. <laughs> uh, and then you know, they started to, to reproduce some experiments that the, the scientists were doing in their lab. They reproduced it nicely, so they were you know, somewhat very proud. And at some point, they made an observation that was somewhat weird. And they asked the professional scientists, have you ever seen this? And they say, no. And then they, the kids asked them, do you know what this is? Okay? And the professional scientists provided you know, one explanation. Uh, but it didn't fit with everything they had observed. So they made a test and they disproved uh, the scientist uh, you know, hypothesis. And so that was very nice because you know, within a few months, mm -hmm. those kids learned so much. And they mm -hmm. were from a very disfavored background. Mm -hmm. And one of those that was you know, so much behind at the beginning of the year, at the end of the year, you went to see the teacher and say, this is uh, interesting, science and grammar have so much in common. And the teacher, you know, yeah. watch and say, what do you mean? And said, you know, there is rules and there is exceptions. <laughs> That's such a great story that comes to the science literacy that, that we were talking about as yeah. well. So, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, it also reminds me of uh, a two-year-old that said, I can do it, I only need to learn it. And so, yeah, we shouldn't underestimate what kids can do. And I know that at Bard College, for instance, in their citizen science project, they go into schools, they get the kids, and they teach them how they can uh, observe their own environment. And I, I really like the end story. So, uh, mm -hmm. I think they, they, you know, to... to also learn from uh, younger folks is, is good for, mm. f because sometimes mm. we are in our ivory tower and sometimes mm. we do overlook things because we already think we've figured it all out. Mm -hmm. So, 
Yeah, mm. and, and you know what's nice is that this story knows thousands of stories because you know yeah. that teacher uh, Anne Jansour uh, became a leader that decided to you know go yeah. out of her class and, and try to train other teachers to do the same and and have kids and scientists collaborate. Where the, the scientists are mentoring, they are not there to give answers so much right. as you know giving the methods to find uh, the answers. And it's it's happening now in Lebanon, even in war zones. I mean, so it's it's you know we're very happy that that this program is is uh, not just for the happy few. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that have a parent scientist. Because if you look at it, you know, the kids that have published scientific papers so far were mostly children of scientists, yeah. uh, which is a very strong yeah, bias. No, the, there is a good example, very symmetry around ones by a guy called uh, Bo Lotto, was, yes, exactly. the, was the scientist who did a, a, a piece on bee behavior with a group of children in a village called Black Autumn. And, and, but his son was yeah. in the classroom. Was he? Yes. Ah, oh, I didn't know There's that. a Michael that Lotto. If you, look, if you look at, at the ah, list of others, yeah. you will notice this. So that's why, I mean, I loved it. That's and I said, you know, really is this reproducible in another uh, setting? Right. So you don't have to have the genes of a scientist to be a scientist. But you have to have this high <laughs> level of science capital or a lot of support to change that. Exactly. That's the thing. So, so this is one of, a great example of, of one of the positive effects of, of citizen science. So the other one that I wanted to touch on um, briefly, you know, before we run out of time is, is how citizen science can change policy. And I think there's, there's some nice examples of that. Um, so I, I know, Renato, with, with your program that you're doing, I guess the intention is to change policy if it hasn't already. Um, yeah, but first of all, we need to, to gather a lot of data and mm -hmm. then uh, over a number of years to actually see if these data over these years are reliable so that we have a baseline. Um, but especially with the issues, climate issues, uh, mm -hmm. that there's drought coming along and that maybe we, are, we all want the river uh, for ourselves, mm -hmm. um, that may be uh, something that might come up and become a policy issue. Mm -hmm. And also how it affects water quality downstream. If everybody upstream is using the water for irrigation and you get more uh, concentrated pollution in those uh, rivers mm -hmm. that actually then needs to serve as drinking water. And I myself would be one of the uh, victims of that because we are at the end of many of the rivers in the mm -hmm. Delta. So where we use the surface water actually uh, for drinking water. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, you know, overlaying this problem with, with water availability and water quality is the climate. <coughs> so and, and it's more feasible though, you know, mm -hmm. you, it's more Tangible, tangible, what I mean, yeah. for, for, for people to work with water than to do something about climate uh, in yeah. a way. I'll, I'll give another yeah. example. Um, you know, the UNESCO is uh, preparing a report on the future of education. Uh, yeah. And they do this type of report last time. The first time was in 1972, mm -hmm. uh, Edgar Faure reports. Next one was 1996, Jacques Delors report. And they want to do one for 2021. Okay? So, you know, it's not that often. And if you look at the reports of the previous uh, decades, you see very interesting proposals that for some reason are not turned into action. Okay. So you might make a new report and, you know, 25 years from now you say, oh, okay, so what do we do? Okay. Uh, so what we plan to do uh, for this report, so Adria Azoulay has asked me to be one of the people in the panel that is going to work on this. One of the things we would like to do is take the, the proposals of the previous report and put them forward to the citizen and say, do you like these ideas? Yes or no? Okay, already, you know, are you putting this into practice? If yes, you know, what are the benefits and how do you do it? So let's crowdsource, you know, solutions. Mm -hmm. And if not, you know, what are the hurdles that make it not possible as of now? And if, you know, what else is missing? So you could start, you know, feeding 
uh, millions of answers, ideally, of citizens that will give answers in very different countries, very different backgrounds, uh, and try to see and how do we build the future UNESCO policy that will influence national policies uh, on the future of education, the future of learning, the, the learning in age of climate change, you know, how do you teach kids about climate change? You know, all these questions are open questions and, and no one in a ministry or at UNESCO can pretend they have the answer. And it brings it, it engages the public more, so that they have some yes. some you know skin in the game essentially. Yeah. So though I think we have to to think again about people's motivations. Mm -hmm. So I think there are clearly an enormous number of people who, particularly around environmental issues, are heavily engaged and whose spare time already goes into climate advocacy or or policy. Uh, work and, and these tools could be very effective at helping those people get their points across. Um, I, I do wonder though about the motivation of, of the average man or woman in the street who you know is busy, probably doesn't want to spend their evenings working on climate policy or, mm -hmm. or water policy and I, 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 what, I don't have an answer to this but I'd like to find a way for citizen science or citizen consultants <laughs> as you say to be representative in, this, in, in a sense rather than requiring it seems to me that we're, we're asking more and more of the citizens and asking more and more of their time um, yes. and, and that can be very tricky, I think. So in, in that specific case, my feeling is the youth is already demonstrating. You know, they are yeah, taking yeah. time. Uh, they, are, they are already and engaged. And you're talking to many people already engaged in education yes. or so on. So. And, and, and if you are, you know, inviting teachers to invite children to yeah. contribute to the debate, then you have a sort of a second order sure. uh, effect and you just have to train you know, the teachers no, no, no. and provide them with the tools and the framework where they can contribute and have the children contribute. Basically, just like citizen science is science, um, the question can be can be the, the the answer to the question can be does science change or contribute in changing policy or in elaborating policies and yes does citizen science yes the same way except uh, it's more engaging for people so it's uh, probably policies that are more uh, on average uh, more adapted to uh, to the to the ground or to 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 the to the people. Um, and uh, and yeah, but but just the same way. For instance, I'm thinking of a, of a program with birds that started on the, in, in some spots where there were dove hunters, and and uh, years ago, decades ago, uh, there were uh, ornithologists starting to count the doves and other birds migrating, uh, uh, occupy the place that was part of the of the thing, and count the doves. And this in the 70s, they they were doing this for their dove hunting um, uh, activism. And, and, and now this, this set of data over the decades about migratory birds, which date do they migrate, which, which are the, the medium dates, etc., uh, provides uh, one of the, at least in France, one of the best uh, uh, set of data to evaluate the effect of climate change on, 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 the, on the fauna. So it's, yeah. it was not meant, just like in science, you can, do a, a, you can produce knowledge for one purpose one question and then can address another policy. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. It, can, it can help another it, it, policy just the same it way. It can raise awareness mm -hmm. though and, 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 and I think highlight issues. I think we, I've mentioned Penguin Watch already mm -hmm. but one of the points of Penguin Watch is to look at the effects on penguin colonies on the Antarctic Peninsula of tourism and fishery, uh, of scientific visitors uh, as well as climate change. Mm -hmm. And um, the results, yeah exactly, so far the results seem to show that at least one of the species is affected most by the krill fishery in the Southern Ocean mm -hmm. and, and the team have been successful at changing some of the protection policies down there uh, to try and prevent this. But I think most of our volunteers who come in with the same image of Antarctica that I have from 
TV documentaries, you yeah. know, it's this pristine wilderness, are quite surprised that fishing is a, is a problem right. uh, in the Southern Ocean. And so I think it can raise awareness and, and those people are highly motivated to listen to messages mm -hmm. and to take on messages for that. But that, that, it's a byproduct of being a scientist, of being yeah. a citizen scientist. That's why I was wondering with your uh, experience with different cultures, uh, so do you think that, uh, you know, we in the West are very vocal citizens, you know, we, mm. we feel that we can change policy, but would this then work in, in a different context equally? Or do we also get a biased uh, contribution of certain groups of citizens? If we think, ah, we've done citizen science here in France or in the Netherlands, but then we only have specific types of people contributing. I don't know what you... Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think you're, you're somewhat right. Um, I think there is, again, questions that people would not dare to ask in specific context, in specific culture. Okay? That's probably very true. Sometimes it might be about sex, or sometimes it might be about politics, or it might be about you know, ants or, or whatever. There, there is taboo uh, in all sorts of culture, and you may not want to be involved in something that is taboo in your culture. Okay, uh, like for instance, you take gender. You know, should you be able to address that question? You know, in Saudi Arabia, you know, questions about gender might not be the easiest to ask, for instance. But uh, I think that if you take, for instance, learning and how do people learn, that's relatively neutral. You know, every culture favors some sort of learning. Sometimes women are not supposed to learn, but you know, on average, there is uh, more flexibility. So I think it depends on the question that you want to ask, and I think that to some extent, especially if we want to to impact policy. I mean, every country has a ministry of education of some sort. Okay, so every country believes in this, so we can uh, try to involve them. And I think that we need new utopias, and we could do sort of a citizen science of utopias. Okay, and we could invite people to dream for the future. Yeah. And many things that you know uh, are social. Uh, progress now were utopic uh, decades or centuries ago, like, you know, abolishing slavery at some point was, you know, a utopia, okay, right. having uh, social security, and it's still a problem in some places, uh, and, and so on. So I think there is some progress, but inviting people to dream of better futures uh, and invent maybe ways towards uh, those better future, it's not going to be very well accepted everywhere, especially those in power don't want, you know, any revolution, they don't want to lose their slave or their wives or their whatever, uh, you know, that they believe their own, uh, but I think, you know, uh, empowering. I think citizen science can be very empowering because you realize you're not the only one. Like in Me Too, okay? You, you, you suddenly, uh, you know, Me Too is not very far from a citizen science of gender and of, you know, women empowerment. Uh, and I think that's the sort of uh, movement that could be fueled and, and used to have an impact on policies and on, on society and on cultural perspective uh, on who, so, what should be done. So have we now taken all of science, all of politics and most of sociology and put that within the citizen science bubble? <laughs> I just thought, you know, this is why, these, this, yeah, is why yeah. this is fun to do. One, yes. one's, yeah. As soon as you engage with citizen science, you, I think one of the things that happens is the boundaries disappear. And I've mm -hmm. spent 15 years doing this at this point, and every time I've been discovering people I should have talked to last year. Yeah. Well, from different domains of expertise and, and di with, with different perspectives on this. I think it's a, a naturally interdisciplinary way of thinking, but we, we end up way outside the boundaries of, of where we start. And, and that's why I think, you know, we, we started as an interdisciplinary center and we run into citizen science for the exact, you know, complementary reason. And then it grows. Yeah, and, and complex issues yeah. requires different perspective. Yeah. 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 So I wanted to touch on a couple of things in the last few minutes that we have and uh, Olivia I'm going to come to you with this question and this is 
uh, about uh, intellectual property and, and ownership of citizen science. How do we think about that when there's citizen scientists involved in uh, generating the data for a paper that is then published? Who owns the data? What role do they have? Do they have to be acknowledged? Well, this has to be, yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, every author, every contributor has to be acknowledged somehow. And sometimes the list of authors is not the best way, especially if you have a, a contribution by 10,000 citizens. Yeah, we, it's we not, it's not very convenient. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it may, it may not be convi very convenient, but at least there, there should be some rules. And these rules should be established at the beginning, big, before the project. Maybe in a, in a, in a framework of uh, there should be a charter somehow or something like that um, with, with some common rules like uh, I think papers should be open access by definition when they are produced. At least that the the, the ten thousand authors right. can read them. Right. Yeah. And and uh, so at least that should be the minimum. And then the <clears throat> and then the, the the about the data. It's more complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes the data is is maybe private. Sometimes so maybe not. Uh, it may not be possible to open them. And uh, so, uh, so there is a question about data. There is a question about ownership, just like in every every science pro scientific project, actually. And and in, in normal uh, normal or conventional uh, scientific project, uh, the, the the authors with the partners they they put all these things together when they start the project, and it should be the same with with citizen sciences. It's just sometimes sometimes maybe a bit difficult because you don't have someone one person to talk with who is the representative of these ten thousand. Uh, participant or, or more if you have a cohort, for instance. So, so is there a danger that we could be taking advantage of citizen scientists? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the, just, just like in any partnership, if you don't set the rules before, mm -hmm. it, it, it can happen. So there, there, there is so much to, to gain from, from doing citizen science, as we discussed in this past hour. Mm -hmm. uh, it should really be, t be taken seriously, the, the, the matter of... Uh, of intellectual property and the way the project is run, governance of the project, who is mm -hmm. part of the governance body, like uh, advisory boards, etc. Mm -hmm. So it should be said, there should be some rules and, and then it should be adapted to every project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think in that sense, communication with uh, the people participating is, is of great importance. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, lack of feedback or a lack of how data are used, you know, just to be very transparent and not discourage them by, by not giving any feedback and saying, thank you for your data, bye-bye. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, that would be uh, yeah, putting things uh, yeah, to, a, to a stop because that mm -hmm. won't work. So I also wonder uh, in that sense, you know, if we keep doing this, um, if there's one project that will not do this and upset uh, citizens. Yeah. So, so, so how, how that will, you know, how okay. other projects will land yeah. Mm -hmm. as well as the previous ones if we don't take the responsibility to really engage with the citizens. And so we as scientists also need to communicate, need to learn how to communicate yeah. science. And, uh, and I think now at universities, uh, science communication is one of the courses also being offered. Like, how do you communicate your science uh, to various audiences? So, and, you know, if you're just a scientist work, working in the lab, you don't really care about it. You just yeah. do your experiments and you publish and that's it. Yeah. Right. 
One of the nice things uh, about citizen science um, and new ways of communicating is maybe in this paper of Boloto that you were alluding to. Uh, you know, they describe their result, what they discover that bees can mm. recognize patterns and not only colors in flower. But they also discover something very important to them, which is that science is cool and fun. Okay. And for some reason, we never published this. Yeah, yeah. But, but, <laughs> in this paper, it's there. It's one of their conclusions. So, yeah, and, right. you know, I've been meaning to add it to one of my papers yeah. ever yes. since. So, actually, I, I think that's a fantastic place to end this discussion. Yeah. Um, science is fun. Yeah. Um, and cool. And cool. It should be shared. And cool. Right. So, uh, thank you all very much. Um, we uh, are going to have to bring this webinar to a close. But I appreciate all of you taking the time to be here um, in the studio. And... Uh, you know, we had a fantastic discussion, and I hope the audience learned from it as well. So thank you, uh, Dr. Chris Lintot from uh, Oxford University, uh, Dr. Francois Tadi from uh, uh, the Center for Research in, and, uh, and Interdisciplinarity, um, Renata van der Weyden uh, from University College Roosevelt, and uh, uh, Olivier Legal from INRA Bordeaux. Thank you all very much. Um, thank you. Please look out for more webinars in this series, available at webinar.sciencemag.org. Uh, once again, thank you so much to our guests uh, and to Foundation Ibsen for their kind sponsorship of today's discussion. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for that.